This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday, uh, right before the Thanksgiving holiday. Unfortunately, this is now our 36th consecutive program since we are dealing with the COVID-19 crisis and the pandemic. The statistics are unbelievable. I mean, they are staggering. We have lost over a quarter of a million Americans to this virus, over 250,000 dead people. And we're averaging such a high number. I mean, we're getting to the point where we're averaging close to 2,000 people dying every day in this country from the virus. Just in Connecticut yesterday, 23 new deaths. So those numbers keep rising, along with hospital admissions. Many hospitals are already starting to go back to where they were in March and April with isolated units for COVID, where just COVID people are. And again, we're going to turn to the heroes, the people on the front lines, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, and ask them to put themselves in harm's way. What One thing that I found so fascinating this week that I heard, and, and never thought I'd see this day, but uh, many of you who listen to the show are familiar with the group called Doctors Without Borders. They are an international group that come to a country and work at a time of crisis. They are doctors who just go out, and typically you'll see them. I became very familiar with them in Haiti and worked with them in Haiti uh, during the earthquake. So when there is a disaster, Doctors Without Borders show up, whether it be in war-torn countries in Africa or in the Middle East. I was shocked to find out that they found the need to set up in the United States. So Doctors Without Borders are here. Where are they? Well, they're mostly out west. They're working in rural communities where we don't have doctors. The United States of America had to go to Doctors Without Borders. No, we're the people that fund it. We're the people who join Doctors Without Borders and go to areas of crisis. We're not the people who need Doctors Without Borders, but apparently we are. I just, I just found that shocking to me that we have reached this level. And it's a, it's a non-political group. The, these are some of the kindest and well-trained people in the world, uh, many from other countries. So uh, we need to take that to heart as to where we are. And we still deal with controversy. There's controversy over closings. What should close? What shouldn't close? Well, let's look at the statistics. 
where are we seeing the most infections? Where are they coming from when we do the contact tracing? Well, the contact tracing goes back to restaurants, bars, cafes, gyms, hotels, and houses of worship. Those are the top six of places where you're going to see currently more spread of the virus. Yet we are closing schools where we don't see as much spread. So people ask why. Well, I think the answer should be evident. And that is because if we close restaurants and bars, there are a lot of people out of work. Now, we did that before, but there was an aid package, right? People were getting aid. They were getting $600 a week so they could feed their families. Restaurants were getting the PPP, the payroll protection plan, to stay afloat. Well, there is no payroll protection plan right now. There is no aid for the unemployed. All we have are food lines. So we really can't close these businesses. Why don't we have the aid? Not because we don't have the money. Now, you would think, well, you can't do it. You don't have the money. We have the money. But we have paralysis in Washington right now on all sides to get an aid package together so that we can safely close these facilities, close gyms, okay, close houses of worship, okay, close the bars and restaurants so that we can make people safe. We have the money. It's just something we need to do. And we need to motivate people to do that. There's a lot of frustration, okay, because there's an end in sight. We're going to talk about that in the second segment. There's an end in sight to this problem right now. The end is a vaccine that hopefully most Americans will take, most people in the world will take, that's proven to work. And if that's the case, we've got this thing nailed. By this time next year, we're back to living a normal existence to some degree with a lot more education but back to some existence so the end is in sight it's not as hopeless as it was in march and april but it seems like we're getting i guess covid fatigue where we're tired of this i don't want to wear a mask anymore i want to go back to my usual life it's like running the end of a marathon where you're most fatigued but that's when you need the most energy. That's where you're going to make up time. And that's what we need to do. I think it's pretty evident. But there's a lot of frustration. There's frustration across the board. Just look, this week, our senators had a hearing on uh, with and Dr. Ashish Jha, from, uh, who is the dean at Brown University, testified. It's almost comical. They had a a hearing on the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine is yesterday's news, guys. Don't waste your time. We've moved on. We now have monoclonal antibodies. We now have remdesivir. We know that there are ways of making ourselves more healthy and protecting ourselves. Okay? So... I just don't get it. Why is the Senate bringing in experts to talk about hydroxychloroquine? 
What makes it even more ludicrous is the fact that they took him to task when he said it doesn't work. They accused this man, Dr. Ashish Jha, who is highly respected in the medical community, as being part of a conspiracy, okay, to denigrate this medication because it's it's less expensive. So we don't have time for silliness, folks. We just don't. And again, it's across party lines. People need to get going here and just stop digging in in politics. The biggest political issue, obviously, is being wearing a mask. Come on, folks. We know it works. We know people can protect themselves. We know it in our hearts. It's not a political statement anymore. It's a way of keeping your family alive as we come up around these holidays. This day in medicine, October 21st, 1555, Dr. George Bauer died. Dr. Bauer's an interesting fellow. He's a German physician and he's a mineralogist. Uh, mineralogist, and he, he knew a lot about minerals and mining. And he developed his medical practice to really specialize in industrial diseases. And he was the person who really reintroduced kind of what was done in, in ancient times, and that was a ventilation system for mining, which, as we know, clearly saved lives by bringing that innovation and making mining throughout the world safer. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back. We're going to continue uh, our discussion on how to make health care better in the United States in the second half of the show. But in our next segment, we're going to talk about some of the hopeful things, this new Moderna vaccine that's 94.5% effective. We're going to talk about expanded testing. We're going to talk about how we get to the finish line in this battle with the pandemic. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You could also reach me at info at alessimd.com. We will take your calls in the next segment of our program. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And in continuing our discussion of some of the hopefulness um, that's coming our way, and that is um, this new vaccine, the one produced by Moderna. And this is the one we heard about this week that's 94.5% effective. Now, if you'll remember, at the beginning of this pandemic, when we looked at vaccines, we knew that it takes years to develop a vaccine and that you hoped that a vaccine would be 60 or 70 percent effective. What we found out from the Pfizer study last week was after they completed over 30,000 trials where half of the people get the vaccine, half think they got the vaccine, they get a placebo, they found that 90 percent of people who got the vaccine were protected, which was tremendous and a tremendous cause for celebration. The Moderna vaccine that works 
in the same way, a messenger RNA virus, a messenger RNA vaccine, this week was 94.5%. So when we get down to numbers, it's they looked at 30,000 people, 95%, 95 of those people, individuals, got infected. But of the 95, only five of the infected people had been vaccinated. So once again, it's not over 90% effective. And the problem here is, one of the challenges is, it takes two injections three weeks apart. So it takes you weeks to reach that immunity. But as long as we can produce that vaccine in large enough quantities and put together a system to vaccinate people and with a hierarchy of the most vulnerable people getting vaccinated first, we could win this battle. Oh, actually win the war. But there are plenty of battles along the way. Now, one of the things I learned this week, and that was a, a research paper was published in, Nature, in Science, actually, and it was an international study. They tried to figure out why certain people die from COVID-19. And basically, because the question is, okay, so if you take a healthy 40-year-old person, why does one person get really sick and the other one has no symptoms? And what they did was uh, this study uh, found that 10% of 1,000 COVID-19 patients who developed life-threatening pneumonia had antibodies that disabled part of their immune system called interferons. So let's talk about it. So some people have antibodies that actually are fighting off part of their defense. So they have a different defense mechanism than other people. And without the adequacy of these interferons, and a, an adequate defense mechanism, they become much more ill than other people. So it, it was interesting uh, because when we looked at the numbers of it, uh, so these antibodies were not found at all in 663 people who had mild or no symptoms. And only four of 1,227 healthy individuals had the antibodies. So uh, this study really helped us from the standpoint that it was a large-scale study. It was done with the help of 40 different countries and 200 research centers. So we're starting to find out more about the immune system and why some people get it. Now, we've already known about risk factors, right, uh, people with other illnesses, um, people who have uh, obesity, uh, people who are smokers, people who have asthma, if you have other conditions, that leaves you more vulnerable. Why? Because your immune system is already stressed. But this is really telling us a lot more information on how people have been able to fight this off. The other thing we get back to is right from the beginning uh, on this program, we've talked about the three steps to fighting the virus, right? Identification, isolation, 
contact tracing. Well, we're now getting back to the first step, identification. You test, you test, you test. The more you test, the more you identify the enemy and you isolate the enemy. So we finally have started to develop tests that could be done at home. This week, the FDA gave approval to a Lucira test, L-U-C-I-R-A. And this is a test that's done at home, nasal swab, put it in the reagent, and in 15 minutes it tells you if you have the coronavirus and may be spreading it, even if you're asymptomatic. A paper published this week by Harvard scientist Dr. Michael Mina looked at how we could change this pandemic if we tested more. And there are tests out there. They're, they're not the most reliable. They're those antigen tests. But they're basically a paper strip. It's like doing a pregnancy test at home. Okay? And with that, you can get a lot of information. Right? So you can tell if, if somebody's positive or not. And at the same time, that person could then isolate. So let's take a practical example. Getting ready to go to Thanksgiving dinner. You'd like to get together with your family. So if everybody took one of these tests at home and were negative, you could get together safely. No problem. If somebody was positive, they bowed out. They stayed home. They isolated. Okay? So that's how easy it is because... Testing, don't forget, testing is a snapshot. It's, it's a picture. At that point in time, are you positive or negative? It doesn't tell you what you're going to be 24, 48 hours later. But it does allow you to go into a bubble, a term we use a lot now. So if you thought of Thanksgiving dinner as your family bubble, right? We're all going to be at so-and-so's house. Everybody takes the test coming into the bubble. If you're negative, you come into the bubble. We're safe while we're in that bubble. Once we leave the bubble, it changes. So what Dr. Mina suggested was that if we were all able to test ourselves twice a week, we could have this thing under control by Christmas. So that would mean... You tested yourself. If you were positive, you didn't go to work. You went and quarantined. You isolated yourself okay, for the 10 days necessary. The virus has nowhere to go because you've now isolated and you've traced. And you've told others you may have had contact with to make sure they tested themselves. So, you know. Right away, the first thing you're thinking is, this is pie in the sky. I mean, this guy, Alessi, what is he thinking? Who, what makes him think people are going to do that? We have people out there denying that there's even a virus, right? They think this was all made up. But when you look at it statistically, if, if half the people did it and obeyed it, meaning they did it, they were honest about it, and isolated, so 50% of the population did it, that would be enough, much like herd immunity, right? You would have herd coverage. People would be isolating themselves, in which case we'd all be free to go to the store, go to restaurants, 
Go to where we want to be and have our lives back. And you could do that by Christmas if you look at the numbers. Now, you might say, well, where are we getting these tests? They're there. We have them. We just haven't produced them. The greatest country in the world, right? We've sent people to the moon. We should be able to produce these tests. They're available. Not like you have to go out and discover it. We just need to produce them and make them available to everyone. Sounds simple, but there are so many things you have to tackle, right? We have a Defense Production Act that could be invoked. Get the tests in people's hands because this isn't done. I mean, we said it, it'll be better this time next year, but we still have some time that we have to work on this. So with that, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest today, Dr. Thomas Pipicelli. Um, Mr. Pipicelli is the former CEO of William W. Backus Hospital, uh, a position that he served in for 15 years. Prior to that, he was COO of Middlesex Hospital. He knows hospitals. He understands how they work. And as we move forward in designing a better health care system, we need advice and the wisdom of people like Mr. Pipicelli. And he's going to be joining us after the break. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to spend the second half of this program with my friend and our guest today, Mr. Tom Pipicelli. Mr. Pipicelli is the former CEO of the William W. Backus Hospital. He is now retired. He served there for 15 years as its CEO. Prior to that, he was the COO at Backus Hospital, and prior to that, the COO at uh, Middlesex Hospital. And as you know, in this program, we're, we're taking a step forward. We want to start looking at how we need to change the healthcare system and how healthcare is delivered, at least in the state of Connecticut. And there's no one I know of who understands better how hospitals work than Tom Pipicelli. Tom, welcome to the show. Good morning and thank you for having Tom, me. Hey, Tom, t take us through how hospitals work in terms of, you know, how are they funded? How, how does an operation like a hospital work? How did it work in the past? How does it work today? Well, I thought about this when you called, and I said, you know, I've been retired for nine years, and um, although I've been reading up, you know, I haven't been in the seat, the CEO seat, for a while. But then I quickly realized that, uh, you know, the basics of hospital care haven't changed. They're the same. Whether we've gotten new technology or new reimbursement scales, um, the important thing is that healthcare still is and will be people taking care of people. You know, when we ran when I ran the hospital, sixty to sixty-five percent of the expenses every year were for salaries and benefits for employees. You know, it was our biggest biggest group, and. You talk about quality. Um, we've long known that, that there's no direct relationship between, you know, what you spend and quality. But in my opinion, there is a direct um, relationship between the quality of your employees, your physicians, 
staff all throughout the organization, whether it's in finance or or the lab or environmental services or dietary. And that staff is what makes a hospital work. And my job as CEO, the basic most important job I had was to have a high-quality staff. Whether that was 10 years ago or today, that's still true. Um, it, it's, you, you know, I, my job as CEO was to get the staff that that could provide quality care, that was committed to quality care. And I must say at this point that I was very fortunate at Bacchus to have an outstanding staff, medical staff, nursing staff, all the way uh, in every department. So I, I think when you look at hospitals, um, you know, you have to recognize that that uh, the staff is is what makes it go. Uh, we, I spent time in the military, and we used to joke that you could provide great medical care in a tent. But, but we, we weren't joking because it was true. You know, if you had the right people there, the system would work. So, I think I think that's the key thing about uh, about you know what a CEO needs to pay attention to in a hospital. The other thing you just said in your opening comment was you know reimbursement. Um. This is a very complex and tricky area, and as people start to talk about Medicare for all, or, or you know, the new rule in, coming up in January and price transparency, you have to understand a couple things about hospitals that that are that are just basic. We have in any given year, and I looked at the statistics from the state for 2019, which is the latest available. Um, you know, I, I, I do suspect that things will be a little different when they do the 2020 report because I'm, I think COVID has changed some of the some of the mix. But typically speaking, in any year, about a third of our patients would be patients with insurance, and two thirds would be government pay, whether it be Medicare, Medicaid, um, Tricare. Uh, and a few other handful of programs. And I got to tell you, I guessed just the opposite. So when I, I did some guessing on this, and I guessed it would be just the opposite. I, I thought it would have been two-thirds of insurance. So, well, so go ahead. Well, that's, that's interesting. Well, let me tell you where you're right. And this is, what, this is what's key to, to, to all the, other, the new programs I talked about, is that the revenue from a hospital, however, comes two-thirds from the insured population wow. and one-third from the government side. Well, actually, right now, because there's been so I'm talking about the hospital. Yeah, no, I understand. Talk, when you include the, the shifts that have occurred over the last 10 years without patient, so right now it's about 50-50, government and non-government. But the point you have to pay attention to is that is that the government – payers generally underpay the cost of service, whereas the makeup side comes from the insured population, which which pays, you know, a, a third more than the government side. So it's like the Pareto principle. Basically, you're saying 80% of your income comes from 20% of your customers. It, it's not far off. It's, okay. It's one third of my customers pays two thirds of the expense. Wow. So 
so I guess what you're saying is without private insurance, hospitals don't exist the way they exist today. Without private insurance, that's true. That okay. That that uh, you know I'm old enough. <laughs> I started working healthcare in 1969 at uh, at your current place, the University of Connecticut. And in 1966, um, you under under President Johnson, they signed Title 18 and 19, which was Medicare and Medicaid. Absolutely. So, so when Medicare and Medicaid started, you know, it was a cost plus program, so that that you you got paid for the services you rendered. Here we are in 2020. And what's happened because of the way the government has moved what they pay through formulas, which have honestly, quite honestly, been somewhat arbitrary. Um, we now have the government underpaying for the cost of service, and you have to have the makeup from the private insurance. Is that where the system is broken? Where it's broken down? Because let's face it, the global thing is we spend more in this country on health care and get the lowest return than any other country in the world. But from the hospital side, is is that where the system's broken, is that the government isn't paying their fair share of the bill? Well, I don't, I don't think it's that simple. It's very complex. Um, certainly what's happened with the government not paying their full share of the bill in general. I mean, it, and here's the other problem. It depends almost by hospital on what your reimbursement rates are and where you are in the country, because the, the government has different payer rates by region um, and by type of hospital. So you, I'm generalizing here. You have to understand. Sure. No, I understand. Um, but but so much of it is driven. Um, you, you won't change the topics on me here, but the cost of health care. Um, you know, we we do... We do have higher expenses in the sense that, you know, physicians in America generally have have higher compensations. Uh, hospital staff have higher compensations. When you start comparing through other countries, I mean, I, I know a little bit about, read a little bit about the Italian system, and, and I, I happen to have a friend in, the, in Argentina, which is a, you know, a national system. Um, but, if, for example... Um, you know, in Italy, they went to uh, a health care system, total paid government health care system. And between 2005 and 2015, 10,000 physicians left Italy because the compensation was so low. But I don't think I'm answering your question in that the cost of health care, our base is a little higher, but the reimbursement side of health care um, which drives so much of what goes on, uh, is is greatly affected by the government programs. It's interesting that you bring up the physician part of it. I think you also have to consider that those physicians didn't pay a nickel for their education. Um, it, you know, it is a free education system for physicians in both, uh, well, I know in Italy, uh, since I was a personal recipient of that. But by the same token, um, you don't graduate with an average of two hundred thousand dollars of debt. So I think that I think your your analogy is a good one. If we're going to address the physician side, but we have to 
address both sides of the equation um, in, in terms of how we put together a physician workforce in this country. Um, we're going to take a sh- I, That's why I hesitated to get into it because sure, because I'm a doctor. Question: <laughs> It's it's very it's a very complex issue. But we're going to take a break and you can't we're, oversimplify it. But we're going to get back and in the second half, Tom. I want to talk about how do we make it better? How does it get better? If you if somebody gave you a blank piece of paper and said, Tom, what should we be doing? We want to know that. So we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Mr. Tom Pipicelli. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back in our final segment of Healthy Rounds. My guest is Mr. Tom Pipicelli, who is the former CEO at the William W. Backus Hospital, giving us some perspective on how uh, hospitals run. So, Tom, we've established that Private insurance really is the fuel that keeps hospitals going uh, when we look at it at a financial from a financial end. And increasingly, they've exerted their authority into what test physicians can do, how they can be done and and things such as that. Um, But what do you see as, as the future, the evolution of this? So you you bring the perspective of having been involved since 1966 when. Um, when we started out and uh, you saw the evolution from Medicare to what it is today, um, where should we be if we had a blank piece of paper and you could design any system? Well, I thought you were going to ask me a different question about what, what how to continue to make hospitals great. Okay, um, let's do that. I'll, but, I'll go with that but one. Because the reimbursement system, my my judgment is, and I've been working on this for 40 years, that that it took us all that time from the last 40 or 50 years to get to where we are today. And with regards to reimbursement, nobody's going to unwind it overnight. Um, you know, it, it, the system is too complex, uh, too too intricate uh, to do that. So um, I don't think anybody's going to ma- wave a magic wand and and change the reimbursement system. Um, I don't I don't think the government can all of a sudden just, you know, go to a position financially of just paying of paying cost and, and make the system balanced. So th- that that's a whole other topic. But with regard to, you know, what what hospitals need to do to continue to be great, um, uh, I know I'm repeating myself, but I used to say to my staff all the time, I know I know there are new and great MRIs out there as we went through the you know, one oh and the one point five and the two and now the three. And it's 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 really easy to get to get focused on um all this new technology and things that are the newest and greatest. But but you gotta pay attention to basics. And and you and you really have to focus on on what what makes the 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 hospital operate. It's it's staff, you know, so to some degree it's facilities. Um, and it's making sure that staff has the supplies they need, doctors, nurses, and so forth, to do their job. Um, that that uh, you talked about the price of, of education, and and for physicians and and for so many other in health people in healthcare, um, you know we need to we need to to make that work. Um, whether whether 
the system needs more financial support because you're you're raising a whole other topic, of course, of you know the upcoming physician shortages and 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 healthcare provider shortages, um, which COVID is only you know made made obviously clear. So I I think if you want to have excellent healthcare and and healthcare is local, I mean that's the other thing we got to get out. Um, people don't shop for healthcare by price in large part. So you have healthcare is local. It, it it has to be accessible. It has to be convenient, and it has to be quality. And and to a large degree, you know, price is set by by the market. So I I think that you know we need to really focus on making sure that we have um, um, sufficient supply of quality staff that can do a really tough job. You know, this is 24 hours. A day, seven days a week. You know, I'm I'm for many many years, not now, but you know, I'm married to a emergency room nurse, and you know, we lived the life of uh, you know, we saw each other every other weekend, um, and every other holiday, and you know, got called in the middle of the night to come in because there was a um, a major event. So so this this is staff that has a tough job, works hard. Um, Especially now with with COVID, and uh, and if you want to have quality health care, you know that's what we got to focus on. So, even if we go to a single payer, right? Um, how do hospitals survive in a single payer system? Does it work? Um, my my judgment is no. Um, it, it can work, but 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 not the way it's currently proposed um you know the 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 interesting fact is kaiser did a did a survey um and asked people if you know if if they wanted a single payer healthcare system and and only 42% people said yes when they said they want medicare for all um 55% said yes so i mean the current my my judgment is the current thinking out there, you know, plays off a name um, that's that's really a, an inaccurate reflection of what what what's to come in a Medicare for all. I mean, Medicare for all totally eliminates Medicare as we know it today. Sure, it takes out the commercial insurances, it takes out Medicaid, and replaces it with a totally new government-run system. And we talked a little bit, you know, we don't have much time. There's so many things to talk about. But we talked about reimbursement. Well, you know, the way Senator Sanders has proposed it, it would be it would it would be paid for through increased taxes. But but the important part for this discussion is it would it would lower health care costs and it would lower health care costs by by simply making, you know, the government setting the rate. And once that's done, then the hospital, if you're the, you're the head of the hospital, yep. you've got a reduced amount coming in. And what are you going to do? You're going to yep. you're gonna, you're not going to have you're not going to be able to have the salaries or the um, uh, employee benefit packages you have now. What does that do to recruitment and retention of quality staff? Physician physician fees w- would be you know compressed to go- to 100% government rates. Yep. Yeah. And, and you know from your own experience 
that nobody could survive at 100% government rate. Oh, I know, Tom. And and I think that uh, I think we all know that the government never ran a good health system. And with that, uh, Tom, I want to thank you. Thank you for your time, um, and thank you for all you've done for our community um, and spending time with us today. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Ann. Many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Oko has been on the board, as always, and Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. I also want to thank my guest today, Mr. Tom Pipicelli, for his time. Um, with that, before we go, I want to make sure I wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving um, and, more importantly, a safe Thanksgiving. Um, please be careful around uh, others uh, and try not to get together in any large groups. If you want to, go out for a walk. Um, and visit with your family that way, and we'll all be back together again, um, hopefully next Thanksgiving, all around the same table. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.